And once again, Captain Hindsight comes to this House and attacks the government for doing exactly what he urged us to do 18 months ago. Lots of words, lots of bluster, no answers. Uh, uh, word of warning. Word of warning, Prime Minister. That's not going to work with the police. <laughs> Market rate, £3,000 a day. Were you signing Lionel Messi? This is First Minister's questions. Just once, just once, it would be nice to get a First Minister's answer. Any political party in this chamber that was confident in their arguments around independence would not be desperate to deny the people of Scotland the right to make that choice. The Steamy, a laudable production for the Scotsman. Hello and welcome to The Steamy, the Scotsman's political podcast. My name's Conor Matchett, the Deputy Political Editor at The Paper. With me this week, as per usual, is Alistair Grant, our Political Editor, Alex Brown, our Westminster Correspondent, and Hannah Brown, uh, no relation still, um, who is another Political Correspondent up in Edinburgh. Welcome, everyone. Did everyone have a happy Easter and a fun Easter? Uh, Alistair, I understand that you know it was a very easy, quiet working environment for a few days. Uh, yeah, it was a bit of a nightmare just because of the disgraceful situation of people going on holiday over the over the kind of Easter break. But it was all right. Other than that, it was nice. I would apologise, but I'm not sorry. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you should be. You should be. I don't remember booking holiday. I had the days off, but I'm not even dry asked for it. It could be a that's, that's not what I want to hear at the moment. It could just be. It could just be a bank holiday or like a reward for doing such a bloody good job. I didn't go anywhere. <laughs> I just didn't help you. That's the only difference. Yeah. I'm happy for you, mate. I'm happy for you. <laughs> you sound it. Um, as as per usual, Partygate is in the news again. Alex, um, take us through the latest. As as of today, as of Friday morning, we're bang up to date. Take us through what's what's happened this week. It's been a bit of a dramatic week. Well, he apologised and offered a fulsome repo- uh, apology. So that's it, mate. It's done. Everyone's forgiven him. It's all fine. We're going to move on and get on with uh, delivering for this great country. Or uh, it's been a complete shambles. So the Prime Minister came to the Commons on Tuesday, offered an apology. I think he said, I'm sorry, 33 times, which is still not explaining why he did it or how or why he lied about it. It was just saying, you know, I, I am sorry and I don't think it's fair for me to make any more comments until blah, blah, blah. Uh, and then Wednesday, and so he got, he got, I mean, it was, it was Tory MPs were pretty supportive of him. Wednesday at PMQs, they were still fairly supportive, but the tide was a bit turning. You had Steve Baker going, you know, I will forgive you. You are a good man, and I believe in the God. In God. And then yesterday, uh, Thursday, it went absolutely mad. Um, the Prime Minister jetted off to India, and because uh, the Parliament uh, MPs Labour filed a motion where they were trying to essentially get it referred to the Privileges Committee, which meant that then um, a neutral committee would decide whether the Prime Minister had misled Parliament. And if you're someone who has done something wrong, but you did not deliberately mislead MPs, you go, fine, bit of transparency, go and have a review. I've got nothing to hide. I've apologised. I said it was a mistake. Let's look all right. Or... Or this Downing Street operation, which has been gutted and redone, because obviously that was the problem, decides, actually, let's whip, let's whip our MPs to get them to delay any, to vote, not only to vote against any such motion, but to vote to delay it with a new amendment that says you can only investigate after the police report and after the Sue Gray report and after everything is included and a further kicking of the can down the road. Now, 
if you're a Tory MP, you're being asked to uh, essentially tell your constituents, it doesn't matter, we're going to leave it and we're going to push it back till after the elections. And they hated it. Number 10, he's got a working majority of 77 and Tory MPs were ap- went absolutely mad. Steve Baker, who went from saying, you know, I'm really sorry and I know that you're a good person and you mean it. So it was said in the chamber yesterday, like, uh, you know, a, <laughs> a budget Batman. I, I want to be filled full of forgiveness, but I'm filled with wrath and vengeance. It's time for the prime minister to go. I just, there were long talks about God and what it meant to be a Christian. He is in so much trouble. This majority is no longer going to be enough to save him. There is going to be um, an investigation uh, led by the Privileges Committee, and he is faced. Uh, this is the week, is the first week I've thought, you know what, it's over. The tide has turned. Tory MPs are no longer going to go after Rowan Patterson. They're no longer going to vote for stuff that they fundamentally know is wrong, but also that the public know is fundamentally wrong because they've already done that and it's hurt them and has, you know, has caused MPs to leave and put them behind Labour in the polls for the first time we've got what feels like a lifetime. The Prime Minister is in real, real trouble. It's interesting watching his interview with Beth Rigby of Sky News on uh, yesterday, yesterday afternoon in India where his body language was appalling. You know, Boris Johnson looked like a man who had just wanted this over and done with. Like, I've had enough. I don't want to talk about anything uh, about about this. And I don't think it's important. And, you know, I'm bored of it. Talking to MPs, has his authority completely evaporated over the last few weeks? I don't know if it's completely evaporated, but it it's there's definitely a sense of like, I'd say borderline despair and disappointment. Because on Tuesday, MPs are saying to me, you know what? He's been a lot more apologetic than I thought he would be. He's shown real contrition, dare I say humility. And the idea of just like, I'm not happy, but the idea of like, we're just going to work and get on with it and just, you know, get on with the job seems to be working and landing. And then after Wednesday and Thursday, which I think is worth mentioning, featured probably Sir Keir Starmer's best performance of the dispatch box I've seen. He was a little bit angrier. He got told off using, you know, unparliamentary language, which is nothing when... You know, the prime minister essentially defend, accused him of defending a nonce before. Uh, they are just angry. They, the tide has this really, really sound. I, they, I wouldn't say they've given up on him, but they're now thinking they don't want to go to bat for him. Yesterday, they went from being having a three-line whip, which meant the MPs are going to have to go there to support the government, to being told, just stay home. And you would think if you're a Tory MP and you know the whole day is going to be out having go at your Tory prime minister, you might show up anyway just to defend him and just to like make the case because you believe what he said. And the government benches were absolutely sparse. Very few people showed up. And those that did, um, two of which were saying it was time for him to resign and go, uh, he, he's lost them. I really, if with more fines set to come, and bear in mind, we've not heard anything about the ABBA party, about the bring your own booze, stuff in the garden. This is just like one event with the cake. I really find it hard to think how we can win back MPs if the public anger and the anger on the party stays where it is. As I said, I'm just going to stress again, I really think this for the first time this week, I've thought this is properly the end. I don't know how he comes back. And even that interview, you know, he's so usually charismatic and funny um, if you're if you if you like that sort of thing. Um, and it, it, talking to Keir at PMQs, he, he turned to turn to the side to one of his cabinet ministers and said, how many more has he got? Like frustrated that Keir would ask more questions because it felt like more because he didn't have any answers with Beth Rigby on Sky. 
He would look at his watch. He looked at the floor. He looked to his age, the side off camera. He interrupted her to say how many more. He does not like having to talk about it because he truly believed he could just do it and get away with it. And then that will be fine. This is a man who has, you know, lied about his affairs and got away with it. He has, you know, the whole Jennifer Curry situation. Uh, he's, he's, he's lied his whole career and there haven't been consequences. And I feel like for the first time in at least his life, this is going to get him. I really, I think he's done. This is really interesting because you've totally changed your tune from last week, Alex. I think you were pretty defeatist in that what he's doing is outrageous, but at the same time, he's going to get away with it because he has done in the past. But now there is just this total change. Yeah, I mean, just being in the chamber for it, you could just feel it was so low energy. And I'm, and I'm sure if Labour starts to do really well and the local elections could intensify things and it could rally MPs around the Prime Minister, because generally when it comes to it, that's what happens. You know, when it comes to it's us and them, people will back the Prime Minister. But there has to, you think there's got to come a point where they go, for the benefit of the party long term, if the polling is like this, there's that whole that mood board from polling where the number one word associated with the Prime Minister is liar. And that's not just from like, you know, lefty people, it's from a general selection of the public. He is... He is not. He does not appear to be the asset they thought he was, and it's also going down poorly in the red wall. The whole myth around the prime minister is that he won the red wall, not that Jeremy Corbyn lost it. And the polling shows that he's no longer the man to save it. If he loses Wakefield, which I think is perhaps quite likely, if they make a lot of losses in the local council elections, which again I think is quite likely, um, we could also be facing a possible uh, by-election of Somerton and Froome, which is after David Warburton's um, scandal. That is a conservative seat with a big majority, but there is a large liberal uh, base there. I imagine that might be in play as well. He is, there are lots of things that can hurt him now and make him no longer look like the electoral asset he once was. And I, and I, I know it's complete change and, you know, a week is a long time in politics. And he's gone from getting away with it and them not caring to they're not willing to show up. They are not willing to speak out. And we're seeing the emails from the MPs who have been publicly a bit more supportive, writing to their local constituents, asking them who they would rather he's played supported for leader in the event the prime minister was to go. The chances of him staying now more long term and leading the next election, I would say do not lie so much on his behaviour. They lie on the strengths of the candidates who now could try to replace him. If we If we play it forward a bit, you know, I think... All of us have said at different points, you know, what we think about whether or not he will resign. But, you know, if if now is a turning point or if this week has been a turning point for the Prime Minister, you know, looking forward, how does this end? You know, what force is it? Do, is it the Privileges Committee that, you know, finds that he's knowingly misled the House? Is that the thing that is required for his res- resignation? Or do we think there'll be a... A chart, you know, a challenger from within the conservative ranks, because even then, as you say, you know, you know, I don't think MPs know who the best person to take that on would be. You know, Rishi Sunak's, I think, uh, star has fallen and is no longer anytime soon a serious candidate for that. But what's going to force him out? Because that is that is the ultimate question. Is you know, at the minute, there's not going to be an election for at least a year or two. You know, the public aren't going to force him out. How does he leave his post if this is a turning point? Well, that's where I perhaps feel slightly sillier 
about thinking it's done. And it's actually quite hard to get rid of him unless Tory MPs decide it's not worth it. If the Privileges Committee say, you know, he found he find he did mislead Parliament, uh, they can recommend a suspension. They could even recommend, you know, he has to go and there has to be a by-election. I mean, that's almost certainly not going to happen, but they could recommend suspension. Problem is, Tory MPs, they, I think, can vote on any sanction. So they could go, you know what, he's, he's broken the rules, he needs to be suspended. And, they could go, and Tory MPs could go, oh, no, he hasn't. And the Privileges Committee can go, oh, yes, he has. Uh, and then, uh, but ultimately, that's meaningless. So I think the only way to get for him to go, really, is no confidence. I he has to get battered and bruised in the elections, uh, both by election and the locals. And then with more fines come and the Privileges Committee thing happens and the Sue Gray report concludes, then, so it's not, it's not going to be immediate because we have to, there's more, you know, this this has been a bad week for him, but there, is, there could be much worse to come. And then Tory MPs go, you know what, we can't do this anymore. Um, even, you know, asked if he would lead them into the next election on the plane going to India. He was like, oh, yeah, of course, I don't see why not. Um, he was you know, not refusing to rule out taking action against his own MPs. It's desperate, desperate stuff. They're under, you know, under, under Cummings, they would, um, the government would do bad things, but they were very well organised. Uh, Mark Harper, the chief whip, had complete discipline. I mean, think how many votes Conservatives managed to win, um, you know, even when things were a little bit locked, you know, when Theresa May went. It's, there's no discipline. Tory MPs are very unhappy. And with more stuff coming, it's only going to be the MPs that can get rid of him, but that will come from anger at the ballot box um, and fury in the streets. You've, I mean, look to the, you know, not to be a lot of rings about it, but, you know, when the time comes, look to the Eastern Daily Press, see what the newspapers are saying. Because once they turn, that will be the mood of the uh, MPs. Alistair, you spoke to Douglas Ross in Holyrood on Thursday, yesterday. What did he have to say for himself? I mean, essentially what he's been saying this entire time that, you know, he thinks the Prime Minister's actions were completely unacceptable, but he thinks that during a crisis, during the war in Ukraine, it's not the right time to replace the Prime Minister. So it's not, it would create too much instability, I think is essentially his position. So he's not really shifted from that. Uh, And I think, I think his problem though is that he is in a situation where he was getting quite a lot of plaudits from a number of different sides about the fact that he kind of come out early and call for the Prime Minister to resign. It was kind of, you know, there's perception it was quite a brave thing to do, that he'd taken a stand, that he'd taken a kind of moral stand. And now after he's done this U-turn, after the war in Ukraine, he's kind of lost that a bit. And I think whether or not you agree with his position, I think that's a problem for him. He just feels like he's kind of flip-flopped a bit. He's not, there is just a perception that, yeah, he's, he's, he's maybe weaker than he was. Uh, and I think when you're going into local elections in Scotland, I think, the Tories will be worried about the impact this is having uh, and also worried about the public perception of him, I think. And H- Hannah, you, you've you've done some local election profiles, I think it was on Fife recently. You know, what what's the view on the ground there? I don't know if you spoke to anyone about Partygate and, and you know, the strength of the Conservatives. Fife is, you know, a bit of a three-way fight between the Tories, the, the Lib Dems and the SNP in certain places. What's the view? Yeah, so Fife's a joint agreement right now with SNP and, and Labour. Um, but kind of, I guess, I guess talking to a few people in Fife at the moment, it's not, without sounding so brutally honest, it's 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 not really that much 
of a concern. They're, these This is local council elections. What the people of Fife are caring about is the regeneration of their town centres, is the job opportunities. Partygate, I think, is something that is, yeah, it's shocking to a lot of people. But the fact of the matter is this Tory tactic of boredom, the boredom game of trying to like delay it and, you know, and, and, and make people less interested in it is sort of working. Uh, sadly, because people, yes, as as journalists and as people that write newspapers and, and put that out to print, it is dominating our paper, it's dominating other people's paper. But I think if we're totally honest with each other and we look around the room of other journalists, we can say that we are getting a wee bit bored of this story. We understand the importance of, of highlighting it and raising it. But when local council elections are coming up, at the end of the day, the main thing that people care about usually is their bins. It's like bins, how how what next shop is coming in place if they if they're gonna get a McDonald's 24-7. You know, like this is what um and this isn't to patronize or condescend people in any way. It's your daily life and it's how you go about you um every day. You know, it's it's Partygate is a shocking scandal to many people in Scotland and to many people in Fife. But it's not what's going to dominate how they vote. What's going to dominate how they vote is whether they will have job stability and security, whether they're, they will see their towns rejuvenated. You know, Fife used to be a, a hive of industrialisation through retail and, um, you know, the coal mining. Uh, and, and it wants to see it rejuvenated. So, yeah, Partygate is sitting on a backseat there because... At the end of the day, whilst council elections come up, these local issues take place. I mean, I think if you're looking at the Prime Minister and you're caring about bins, you're still going to make the connection and go, it's time to take out the trash. <laughs> uh, I think bins were even mentioned at PMQs this week, which, uh, you know, is always nice to get before the, the council elections. This is where we bid Alex adieu for the week. Alex, thank you very much for joining us. Um, we'll speak to you next week, presumably probably about more Partygate. Um, but enjoy the rest of your Friday. Yeah, you too, guys. Bye, Alex. So with it, with Alex departed, uh, let's focus a bit more on uh, Scotland and Holyrood and what's happened in the Chamber this week. Um, one one big story early on in the week was uh, Nicola Sturgeon's uh, co- own COVID rule-breaking breach. She was filmed in a barber shop without a mask on for a few seconds. The police got involved and had a chat said no action was necessary and Twitter, particularly unionist Twitter, exploded in rage. I don't know, H- Hannah, I was on I was on holiday, I missed most of it. I don't know which one of you did looked at it more or uh, you know wrote about it, but it seems like a, a bit of a storm in the teacup compared to, to Boris Johnson, which is exactly the SNP line. Well yeah, I mean it it was big at the time as well because it was just as face masks, the legal requirement to wear them was dropping. Um, and it was just at the weekend when the First Minister went to East Kilbride and this happened uh, during a kind of campaign trail. Uh, so, yeah, it, it was it was big at the time because it just kind of reached that point where it was still legal and she could still be held accountable for it. Um, so I think that's why it kind of drew up a lot of attention at the time. And obviously the police did say no further action will be taken, but there was still that we reminded the First Minister of how important it is to, to have this, uh, to, to kind of follow a legal requirement. Uh, and she did apologise. She did say, 
you know, I'm sorry for doing that. And, you know, it won't happen again. It was immediate thing. Like the SNP came out saying, oh, she immediately knew to put her face mask back on. Um, and yeah, it, it, it was just one of those things. It was kind of played off as we all do that because fair enough, we all do do that. I mean, I've gone into, you know, shops and buildings and places where I needed to wear a face mask and go, oh, yikes, I actually don't have one. I've got a scarf on. Let's use that, you know, use makeshift uh, things to kind of work your way through that one. Um, So it does happen to all of us. But at the same time, if you are the rule maker, if you put this down, you still should be held accountable. And the first minister, to be fair to her, recognised that. And she said in an interview with Loose Women, which was quite interesting, um, that and that was the only space that you got a lot of women talking about politics, which is also interesting to me. Um, you know that this this was something that she was apologetic for, and she knows that as the first minister, she should be given more of a hard time for it as a result. Um, but yeah, it's and I think I think she had a bit of a attack or a bit of a fight with the other one of the other panelists, Carol, I can't remember her last name, um, who kind of brought up the whole comparison with Boris Johnson. If you're getting stuck into him, well, you can't even follow your own rules. Obviously, there is a significant difference, I believe, in the sense that these were ongoing parties and it was a culture of partying that I think the SNP will probably argue with. Whereas this is probably something, and I don't know if you you both agree with this, this is something that we've all done um, but obviously the First Minister does need to apologise because it has her rules at the end of the day. I think I wrote in the in the Scotsman as, you know, our, one of our page two letters on uh, in Thursday morning's paper that, I mean, the, the difference is not particularly difficult to understand. There was a lot of calls for, you know, I think Kenny Farkas in the Times was, you know, push, pushing the idea that she was lucky to still be in her job. And I... I think you know he's true. He's right to an extent, but um, I think there was a stat that the Daily Record published that one Scot, one person in Scotland, was fined for not wearing a face mask in six months in the second half of 2021. And I think I think that's fundamentally the difference is that you know uh, if the police the police Scotland's kind of general tone of we'll have a stern word, but remember to put your mask on next time versus the Metropolitan's police, you know, approach to gatherings and, and, you know, protest, you know, such as the Sarah Everard vigil, which was extremely heavy handed and arguably unlawful, you know, the two different approaches have saved the first minister and probably doomed the prime minister. And obviously Nicola Sturgeon knows that if she would, she did become another person to, to be fined, she'd have to resign. She knows, she knows that fact. And I think that's the only thing that saved her. But I know, Alistair, you you have the belief that absolutely no one gives a hoot. I think it's a story. I mean, it's always a story when something like this happens and it's, you know, something you've got to report on. But I just don't think anyone, yeah, I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but I just don't think anyone would look at that and think that that's, you know, at all a scandal. I mean, it's it's something that I think everyone has done. You know, I've certainly done it. Walked into a shop by accident without a face mask. I walked halfway around Parliament with before realizing I wasn't wearing a face mask. <laughs> yeah, there is no sensible comparison to the situation with the Downing Street parties. And I think anyone making that comparison, uh, if they're doing it seriously, is being disingenuous. So let's let's move on to what else happened in the chamber this week. Um, Alistair, you were 
majoring, as we like to call it, on FMQs, and there was lots of electioneering going on. Yeah, it was a classic FMQs before the election. Uh, and I should say, if I sound a bit funny, it's because I'm sitting in a car park in Greenock in my car, uh, just about to go into the S&P Manifesto launch. And yesterday, you know, it was very much, it was kind of, the Tories went in on their, their kind of war on motorists idea, their kind of triple whammy of taxes that drivers are facing, so the kind of workplace parking levy, plans for congestion charges in Edinburgh and Glasgow, uh, kind of road toll being floated in Glasgow. It's all quite vague, though. But they went in on that, and I think it's a good issue for the Tories, to be honest. It's something that they, you know, I think they think it works well with voters. Lots of people drive, lots of people worry about the rising cost of driving, particularly now with the cost of living crisis. Um, I think maybe, unfortunately, for Douglas Ross, he obviously has the background of Partygate hanging over him. And I think it was interesting in FMQ's yesterday as well, just how much noisier it was. The atmosphere was much greater just because social distancing rules in Parliament have been relaxed. You know, we're kind of back to normal now. So there's a lot more people in the chamber. There's a lot noisier. And there's a times when Douglas Ross is actually being drowned out by the SNP benches. And I think Anna Sarwar went in on uh, this idea of, I think it was three billion pounds of figure he used of SNP waste, you know, kind of losses the government has made due to what he called its incompetence. So he's bringing up things like Ferguson Marine, things like agency workers in the NHS, um, things like, I think one of the one of the examples he used that maybe wasn't that sensible was he used the malicious prosecution of Rangers uh, by the Crown Office. But obviously the Crown Office is separate from government, you know, it's independent. Uh, so he kind of gave Nicholas Sturgeon an easy way in to just to be like, you're bringing this up, you're blaming me for this. Do you really want ministers to start interfering in the justice system? Um, but again, it's it's part of that whole idea that the SNP stewardship of public services has been, has been flawed and there's been waste and they're not managing things well. So it's very much uh, pre-election FMQs. I don't know what you guys thought of it. I thought it was uh, intensely average, to be honest. I didn't think there was much much in it for anyone. It's, it's an interesting one because I think I think you're right. I think Douglas Ross attempting to you know, credibly attack the SNP at the minute, it feels like an a- actually a bit of a waste of time. And obviously we know, I mean, that everything on these things are clipped for, you know, much just, just like in Westminster, these questions are clipped for online to send out to the masses and to rile up your voter base and to hopefully convince some floating voters on a specific issue. But in terms of you know, political debate. You know, Douglas Ross, I think, you know, it's a good issue. But at the same time, I, th- I, th- I think the SNP response of, well, we're just giving local councils the power to do it, is also a, a legitimate response. The question, of course, is, you know, probably going to come post-election is, you know, will the SNP actually, it, you know, an SNP-led councils run this and all of that sort of thing. And I don't think Douglas Ross really hit, hammered that point home enough. Well. I think it's interesting, though, because I think you're right that the SNP's argument that they're handing more powers to councils is completely legitimate. It's something that the Conservatives have called for themselves in past manifestos, albeit not on these particular issues, but that general idea of handing them more powers. But I think it's probably politically, whether whether something politically makes sense is sometimes different to whether it actually logically makes sense. So I think politically it's a good issue in, in, in the sense that these these things sometimes get quite clouded and congestion charges are controversial. Uh, and I think the fact that Nicola Sturgeon said in the chamber that she doesn't agree with road tolls, I think could be could come back to haunt any SNP council that tries to kind of go down that route of road user charges. 
so I think he did get something out of it, and I, I can see why. I can see why they went down that route as a, as a conservative tactic. But yeah, like you say, just uh, the messenger at the moment is is flawed. What did you make of FMQs, Hannah? Well, I was quite glad to see that anti-abortion buffer zones or anti-abortion protest buffer zones were mentioned during FMQs uh, the other day. Uh, it's, it's something that's been brewing for quite a wee bit of time. I mean, it's well, it's been brewing for around six years now, but to actually have this attention come on it right now has probably been around the fact that there was a massive protest outside the Queen Elizabeth University Hospital in Glasgow over a week ago where over 100 anti-abortion protesters stood outside the maternity unit. Now, at the moment, Scotland doesn't have any implementation of a buffer zone which would allow about 150 metres of this certain activity to to kind of be excluded away from the hospital, which would mean that a lot of women who are going in who are getting this treatment, and we need to remember this is really, for most women, it's a horrible um, and distressing thing to go through. This in itself, to go through that for a woman cannot be undermined and underplayed. It is something that women have to do for their own healthcare and treatment. Uh, and it's sometimes not even elective abortions. It's women who have fetal abnormalities, um, women who could die if they don't get an abortion. Uh, so this access to their healthcare is vital. Um, and the fact that the Scottish government haven't, hasn't acted on it in itself is brewing up to be a scandal, I believe. Mary Todd, the Women's Health Minister, um, has kind of come out saying, you know, they're working on their plans to implement buffer zones. I think there was a national plan on buffer zones, both promises made in the SNP manifesto and also in the Scottish government's programme for government. Uh, so these are promises that have been made that have not yet been kind of implemented. And it's a real real issue. What, what's kind of been said and what's the big excuse is that um, COSLA uh, can, or sorry, local councils can enact enact bylaws which would allow them to kind of ban these certain protests. However, COSLA then looked for kind of legal advice on this and this legal advice showed that, well, no, that falls in the Scottish government. So it's been really passed in between the Scottish government and local uh, authorities, this infighting. So at FMQs the other day, Monica Lennon brought it up and she was saying, you know, urgent action needs to be done. And the First Minister's response to this was, oh, well, it's a complex legal process. Um, but still, she kind of stood against any, um, you know, action to deter women from accessing their health care. It's all very well saying this, but without this implementation of buffer zones, that is not possible. Um, and it's a real issue for women accessing or trying to access this health care right now because they don't have it. Um, also, the issue of telemedicine was brought up as well which would allow women access to early abortion kind of service um, uh, because that was kind of implemented by the Welsh government and also in England. This has become new and Scotland is trailing behind on this level. So it's really interesting because I think in a lot of ways, Scotland has thought of itself as leading with women's health policies, uh, with our kind of period products bill, which was brought in, you know, Scotland was championed as the uh, as the kind of fighters for women's health and equality. Um, but this is brewing right now and it's it's shocking so many women um, trying to just access healthcare and women in general. I mean, I don't know many women who haven't had this shock of, and fear and worry of having to, you know, access such treatments um, 
And yeah, the Scottish government isn't doing really much about it. And it was it was interesting to hear Nicola Sturgeon's response to that from from memory, which was that she was saying that Scotland has become an easy target for you know what what she called kind of American style anti-abortion protesters, um, which begs the question, as you kind of say, you know, why isn't the Scottish government acting faster? to ban something that the First Minister and seemingly the majority of her cabinet, if not all of them, you know, and presumably the vast majority of MSPs believe is 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 an abhorrent thing to, to do to women. Yeah, I mean, the, the thing that the Scottish government say and, and that Mary Todd said is that there is a, a member's bill being brought forward by Gillian Mackay, I think, uh, to introduce the buffer zones. But this is currently being finalised and this could take months to implement, given that there's a three month consultation period that has to go alongside this. And yeah, what what MSPs and campaigners such as Back Off Scotland, who are kind of calling for this 150 metre buffer zone um, are wanting to see as urgent action now. I mean, doctors, consultants, um, I think even BIPAS uh, have written in and as well as MSPs kind of urging Mary Todd now, speaking to all of these groups who've written separate letters, they've not got any response. Um, and it's kind of falling on this working group buffer zones to do something about it, which has um, members of Police Scotland, NHS, kind of other health board partners, um, and I think local authorities. But really, people want to see action now, and it's just not happening. Alistair, you are in sunny Greenock, as our Greenock correspondent. Anna Sawa is in Port Glasgow, just down the road, uh, unveiling his version of the Ed Stone in a what sounds like a giant receipt of the three billion you mentioned. Uh, this is also the SNP's manifesto launch, which uh, eagle, eagle-eared uh, <laughs> listeners will, will remember was due to happen last week and definitely there wasn't a campaign launch a fortnight ago. Um, absolutely no campaign launch at all then. What, what are we expecting from the SNP today and from Nicola Sturgeon? You know, she's, she's due to set out her local elections manifesto. You know, are the SNP out of ideas? Do we expect anything big and exciting? Uh, well, I'm I'm sure we'll we'll hear there there are many kind of pledges in local government. I think one of the things we'll definitely be asked about just because it's just down the road is the ferries fiasco. Fergus Marine is literally not that far from here at all, uh, so I think they'll get quite a few questions on that from the media. But yeah, it remains to be seen what what their actual like like you say they had this campaign launch a couple of weeks ago, and there's this kind of controversy over the media not being invited or certainly newspapers not being invited, uh, and then it's it's slightly well perhaps slightly strange that they're launching their manifesto after postal votes have you know started dropping in people's doorsteps and all that kind of thing but yeah we'll see we'll see what they've got to say for themselves and it's worth worth briefly mentioning the ferries fiasco ongoing ferries fiascos um there was a genuinely fascinating uh, um session of the public audit committee on Thursday in Holyrood uh, with the auditor general Stephen Ball and um, a few other audit managers from from Audit Scotland, which uh, took took us all through. I watched it at length; thought it was great, um, and uh, it kind of set out the issues of, of the Audit Scotland report into the into Ferguson Marine and the two vessels with Richard Leonard. And this is the thing I think is critical, and we'll, we'll likely hear more about it. Uh, Richard Leonard essentially asked the the Auditor General, you know, do you think? All the all the evidence suggests there was a ministerial directional, you know, a written authority was sought for the decision to um, 
give Ferguson Marine this contract. Now, for, for those at home that don't know what this that means, you know, the ministerial direction is something that's asked for by civil servants when they have f- objected to a policy and a spending proposal, and it's required in order for, for that to go ahead. The Auditor General is meant to be, you know, informed when anything like that happens. And Richard Leonard asked a very clever question. He said, you know, all the evidence is consistent with the ministerial direction happening, but that it wasn't recorded. And the Auditor General turned around and said, that's a fair assessment. And I think we're going to hear a lot more about that. You've, you know, there's a potential breach of Public Finance and Accountability Act um, and far more to, to be learned about the ferries fiasco in the coming weeks. Um, and I think the Auditor General is coming back for part two next week um, before uh, the Public Audit Committee decide whether or not to do a, a full inquiry. But this feels like a scandal that's going to run and run and run, Alistair. Um, I mean, you're in Greenock. It's a massive issue for, for the communities around there. It is a massive issue. I think it is a scandal that will run and run. And I think, you know, the Public Audit Committee will come back with a second evidence session with uh, Stephen Boyle, with the Auditor General. And then they're widely expected to launch a short inquiry into this. So there'll be this will be running in Hollywood for quite a while. And as we talked about in this podcast before, that inquiry will probably hear from people like Derek Mackay, the former SNP minister, who was a junior transport minister at the time the contract was signed. You'll hear from Nicola Sturgeon. Uh, and it will just be completely fascinating. And it will be a, a box office Hollywood event, to be honest. I mean, hearing from Derek Mackay, people will remember, has not set foot in Hollywood since you know, February 2020, when he resigned as finance secretary over messages he'd sent to a teenage boy. So he's, he's not been really heard from since. Um, and, you know, it's been reported that he feels victimised, he feels kind of blamed by the Scottish government, and he wants to set the record straight. So however he does that, I think will be very interesting. Absolutely, box office stuff. Uh, thanks, all three of you, for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you very much at home for listening. Uh, we'll be back next week, same time, um, after FMQs on Friday. Um, or FMQs is obviously on Thursday. The podcast comes out on Friday. Um, Alistair, enjoy your day in Greenock. I'm sure it'll be lovely and filled with joy. It will be. <laughs> um, and Hannah, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much for listening. Goodbye. The Steamy, a laudable production for the Scotsman.